Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. And here's our dear, dear friend, Dr. History. Good morning. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing today? I am peachy fine, wonderful, and hopefully we're going to be able to get in the same studio here soon. Well, hopefully next week. We'll, we'll shoot for it. Okay. Uh, what about anybody to thank, anybody to acknowledge, yeah. anybody that you want to recognize here today? Yes, I got an email this past week from a guy named Jay, who I believe is down in Texas. And I want to thank Jay because he pointed out that when I did the podcast on John M. Browning, that I, there was a few things I didn't quite have right. And so I get the impression that Jay must be quite an expert on guns. And so I appreciate him uh, uh, emailing me, and uh, I'm going to check out what he told me. And uh, anyway... So just want to say thanks to Jay. You know what? I respect you for saying that because uh, sometimes somebody else, maybe a family member in the family tree or someone closer to the situation or circumstances of the story that you're talking about, maybe they've got some firsthand knowledge you don't have. Exactly. And I've always claimed I'm not an expert. I just tell stories. And so I'm going to hopefully find out more about uh, what uh, Jay's been talking about to me and if we can get this, some things straightened out. All right. Well, what have we got cooking on the oven today? Well, we're going to go back into your your home territory. Oh. All right? And you're probably going to recognize some of these names. Uh, but long after the last of the really bad Plains, Plains Indians had suffered the final defeat at the hands of the white man, the otherwise peaceful Chippewa Indians in northern Minnesota staged their first and only armed outbreak, the Battle of Sugar Point, sometimes referred to as the Battle of Leech Lake, was the last authenticated conflict between Indians and white settlers on the North American continent. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Leech Lake or Walker, the town of Walker, but it's, it's up there in Minnesota. I, I, it wasn't too far from where I went to college. Okay, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, out in the middle of Leech Lake, there's an island called Bear Island. It's four miles long and less than two miles wide, and it lies about three miles from the eastern shore uh, of Leech Lake. And in 1898, it was occupied by several hundred Chippewa Indians, and they were just living pretty peacefully. Uh, they They would gather berries and wild rice, and they actually had planted gardens and were living off Uh, the land there, and just, you know, living a a pretty good life. But sometime in April of 1895, the leader of this group, and I'm only going to pronounce his name once, and then I'm going to refer to him as the chief. Oh, okay. Chicken. (laughs) His name is Bugane Geshig. Geshig. So, chief. From now on, I'm just going to say chief. I'll be honest with you. I admire your attempt, but I think I would have just called him the chief from the (laughs) get-go. Well, I didn't want to leave his real name out. So, anyway, the chief was arrested for providing another Indian with some whiskey. And when their only witness disappeared, the chief was released, but was served a subpoena to appear before the same court as a witness the following June. Well... He ignored the summons and was arrested for contempt of court, but was rescued by some of his tribesmen. Warrants were issued for the arrest of the chief and the 12 others, 
but it was not until May of 1897, now we're two years later, that the Chippewa agent was able to get nine of the 13 into court. They pleaded guilty and were sentenced to 30 days in jail. Now, no attempts were made to bring the chief in until 1898. Now we're four years down the road. Mm -hmm. Well, the authorities decided to arrest him when he came into the agency to receive his annuity payment. Now again, however, the chief was rescued by his men. The U.S. Marshal at St. Paul immediately secured warrants for the arrest of 22 Indians and requested that a detail of soldiers be assigned to assist him. Now, the War Department authorized a detachment of 20 men sent from Fort Snelling under the command of a guy by the name of Lieutenant C.B. Humphreys. Now, rumors that the Chippewas were preparing to resist kind of prompted Humphreys to telegraph for reinforcements on October 3rd. Meanwhile, a council was held, but neither the agent nor Indian inspector could persuade the Indian delegates to turn the chief over to the authorities. They didn't want to let him go. Well, the following day, Brigadier General John Bacon arrived in Walker, five miles from the agency with 80 men, a trip by the marshal and Indian inspector to the chief at his home on Sugar Point proved uh, fruitless. He didn't, still wasn't going to do anything. He refused to surrender himself or his men. So at dawn on October 5th, two days later, two steamers, one of them towing a barge loaded with soldiers, made the 30-mile run up the lake from Walker to Sugar Point and uh, to the chief's camp. And, uh, but the camp was almost deserted, although some of the fugitives were captured there, and they were put in irons in one of the steamers. And after, after a reconnaissance of the area, General Bacon ordered the troops to fall out and prepare dinner. So they were hungry, I guess. Anyway, a shot from one of the soldiers' guns discharged accidentally when a recruit was stacking his rifle, set off kind of a return from Indian snipers hiding in the woods around the camp. One soldier was killed and several others wounded. The troops immediately formed a firing line, and a pretty hot exchange uh, lasting over half an hour followed. Now, the sniping from the Indians continued, uh, and uh, they were excellent, excellent marksmen, and they did hit two more soldiers. Well, that evening, trenches were dug and sentries posted because uh, they were anticipating that the chief would uh, direct an attack um, the following morning. Well, but the Chippewas continued their sniping tactics of the day before, and they actually killed several more soldiers, and uh, wounding the Indian inspector and a marshal by the name of Sheehan. An Indian policeman with the troops was killed by a soldier who thought he was one of the chief's braves. So one of the guys got killed by his own friendly fire. Now, realizing the how futile it was of trying to... Uh, get the Chippewa out of defense, out of the, out of the woods, the general, Bacon, uh, withdrew his detachment, uh, and he gave heed to rumors about a general uprising throughout the Chippewa nation, and he began making plans for a wholesale campaign. Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Harback marched 200 men from Fort Snelling to the agency, and 100 men under Lieutenant James Moore were assigned to guard the dams on the Leech Lake vicinity. Governor Clough of Minnesota ordered two National Guard batteries into active duty, and several companies of the Minnesota Infantry were sent to occupy various points along the Great Northern Railroad. 
So now we've got, what, four or five hundred <laughs> troopers out there to fight against the Chippewas. Well, the Chippewas, uh, surrounded by troops, they had no intention of launching an all-out revolt. And only the chief and about 35 braves at Bear Island were involved in this uprising. So here you have, like, say, four or five hundred troopers, and you only had, uh, you know, 40, 35, 40 uh, Indians that were uh, involved. Well, there's a guy by the name of W.A. Jones. He was commissioner of U.S. Indian Affairs, and he arrived at the agency from Washington October 10th, accompanied by a guy by the name of Father O. Alosius, and he was head of the mission at White Earth, Minnesota, and he was well-liked by all the Chippewas. They, they thought he was a good guy. Uh, well, anyway, uh, they uh, got to Bear Island, and as they were, uh, you know, that was kind of an important power, uh, this, this Father uh, Alosius. I think I understand the guy's name because I've heard of it before. It's Aloysius. Okay. Well, it doesn't look like that with the spelling. Oh, okay. I'll take, I'll take your word for that one. That's I think it was Father name. Aloysius, and I remember hearing a story about him. Pardon my interruption, but I thought I'd no. get you off the hook. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so anyway, so they sent Father Aloysius and a canoe loaded with sugar, flour, tobacco, and other uh, goods to request that the Chippewas meet the commissioner in a council. Well, the gifts had their effect, and on October 12th, Jones met with the the Chippewa delegates, and he insisted that the men named in the warrant surrender, but the Indians refused unless some promise of immunity was given. So they they weren't just going to fall for anything, you know. They wanted to make sure they were okay. Well, the Indians seemed uh, desirous of ending the the conflict, the rebellion, and uh, provided they could gain assurances that certain longstanding grievances were corrected. So there were other things that were involved in this whole thing. But a number of the chiefs and braves uh, published an address to the state and country stating they regretted the deaths already caused, but that the Chippewas' rise against uh, insults and broken promises had been unavoidable. The whites, they said, would have done the same thing under similar conditions. So they promised not to engage in further hostilities, and they trusted the great white father and, and that he would be understand and that he would be lenient with them. By October 20th, most of the Indians cited in the warrant were in custody, although the chief was still at large. He hadn't turned himself in. The prisoners were taken to Duluth, and fines and jail sentences were, were given out. Now, Commissioner Jones felt the punishment was too severe, and he proposed a remission of the fines and jail sentences, reduced only two months. So on January 3, 1899, President McKinley issued a full pardon to all the Indians that were involved in this. Now, the chief was never brought in and was a free man not only after his pardon, but all the time before. So he was pretty much uh, off uh, scot-free. Anyway, from a military standpoint, the Bear Island Chippewas had come out of this victorious. They did not lose a single man. They'd been able to withstand a superior group of soldiers, like I said, I don't know, four or five hundred, and forced them back to their base. Six soldiers died, and nine were wounded as a result of the Indians who were excellent uh, marksmen. And, of course, one of those that died was actually shot by his own men. So... In a telegram to the War Department, October 8, 1898, 
Governor Klaus stated, quote, I do not think General Bacon has won the victory he claims. The Indians claim to have won, and that is my opinion. And then he goes on and had other battles. Uh, the long series of American Indian Wars been handled as tactfully as that was. The history of the United States Indian relations might have been drastically changed. Hmm. So that's the story of the Battle of Bear Island. And uh, anyway, that's. Uh, I know that's not a very long story, but that's. Uh, kind of thought that was up in your territory you'd, you'd enjoy that. well you know i got some questions for you right there and uh i think some research that you and i could both do together a lot of people don't realize and wheels there's a little feedback here uh a lot of people don't realize that some of the most dangerous and some of the most treacherous indian wars against uh, the whites and vice versa took place back in the midwest my hometown where i was born in raised Fort Atkinson was named after General Atkinson and they had a very very heated battle right there in my hometown at the fort with Chief Blackhawk and the Blackhawk Indians that roamed all the way up and down the Rock River from southern Wisconsin all the way down into Illinois. There's a story for you to look out because just in the last 25, 30 years, I think, they found uh, through excavation some of the original posts of the fort where the, where the city was built. Well, and as you look at the kind of the general uh, uh, outlook on the whole thing you know obviously uh the whites started on the east coast and gradually uh started moving more and more west and more and more and basically kind of driving the indians farther and farther yeah. uh, from their homeland yep. uh, uh heading west uh there is a story that i have told quite a while ago about uh a group of uh white indians and the theory is that these were Vikings mm-hmm. that had made their way into the, you know, clear into the, I think it was the Minnesota, Wisconsin area, somewhere in there, where they, there was a tribe of Indians that had quite a few white uh, children, uh, and they think they, they were actually from a, a Viking uh, expedition. Yeah got that far into the country. Yeah, well, see, that was the origination theory of how the NFL Minnesota Vikings came to be. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Okay, you had me there for a second. (laughs) Just for a second. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, again, I I look at this, uh, the Chippewa tribe, they seem to be a very peaceful tribe. They're living uh, on that Sugar Point area and on the Bear... uh, on the island, uh, Bear Island, you know they're they're planting gardens. They're uh, they must have, they were receiving some assistance from the government, but it looked to me like they were uh, doing very well for themselves and. Uh, you know, just really wanted to be left alone. Well, the tribes up there in that country of Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota, uh, they had everything. I mean, you had the Four Seasons. <clears throat> you had adequate and very abundant wildlife. You had water. I mean, you had it all. And then the white man came in, and there was trouble in River City. Yeah. Well, you know, just I'm just looking at a map of this Leech Lake with, and it looks like a beautiful lake. Yes, uh, yes. And uh, the Sugar Point, just uh, right there, kind of just north of the of uh, Bear Island, 
and you know what a what a great place to live. I mean, on that island, it's just just big enough, but just small enough that uh, for the Chippewa tribe to live on. And again, they must have lived partially on that uh, 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 kind of promontory that sticks sticks out called uh, Sugar Point. I wonder how many tribes back in those days were prominent in that area. I mean, you had the Iroquois, you had the Chippewas, you had the Menominees, you had the Blackhawks. Wow, there were a lot of tribes, big tribes, back in the Midwest. You know, I picked up a book here the other or a while back that goes through hopefully every single tribe that was in America. Wow. And it gives about a, oh, about a half a page uh, kind of history of... I, hopefully, pretty much every tribe that was in America when uh, when it was discovered. I and, guess uh, the number one question I've got for you, Dr. History, and I remember I asked you this one other time on the program, the discernment of establishing a tribe and what constituted a tribe and what they did that kept them separate from other tribes. That would be an interesting program right there. Right, and... In some of those tribes, if, if uh, a person from one tribe married somebody from another tribe, then it was such that the man would be- become a member of her tribe or the other way around. Mm-hmm. She would become a member of his tribe. So, so there was some, some mixing and intermarrying, but, but once they were married, then they became adopted by either his or her uh, tribe, and they mm-hmm. became officially a Chippewa or a Black Hawk or, or whatever you wanted to call them. Was there a lot of fighting and uh, bickering amongst the tribes, not only there but across the United States? I mean, was it over land? Was it over perhaps fishing and hunting rights? Did they have their own political warfare, if you will? They did if they felt like another tribe was moving into their hunting grounds. So if, if, for example, out here in the West, if, uh, let's say, the Shoshones would go down uh, somewhere south, like into the Utah area, annually to hunt uh, buffalo or whatever, and if another tribe happened to be coming into what they considered their hunting grounds, then, yeah, there was conflict. They, uh, they, there would be battles to defend your hunting grounds or even your, your winter uh uh, where you'd stay for the winter. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty proud of their territories, and they would defend them uh, with battle, yes. Okay. Well, again, very interesting story, but I think sometimes we kind of, uh, oh, I think minimize uh, what happened in the United States. A lot of the big Indian wars and battles actually were not fought out in the West. They were fought back in the Midwest. Yes, yes, that's true. All right. You did it again, and I can't wait for you to get back in the studio, my friend. Okay, and I want to say thanks again to Jay for uh, pointing out some of the uh, research I need to do on the John M. Browning guns. So thanks, Jay. All right. Well, Dr. History, be safe, be well. God bless you, man, and we'll talk to you next week on Tuesday. Okay. You have a good day, Zach. Thank you, sir. Bye. Always, always enjoy Dr. History. Thank you very much.